Hey there, Marketing Sweats fans. It's Misty, and I'm back with a brand new season. I can't believe we're already on our seventh season of the show, and I'm super excited about this one. With March being Women's History Month and Samantha's focus on B2B and heavy industry brands, we thought it would be fun to devote an entire season to the women who make them go, or the badass women as we like to call them around here. Breaking into historically male-dominated industries is no easy feat. Neither is navigating the challenging waters of work-life balance. That's why I want to celebrate the strong, talented, and fierce women out there killing it and inspiring future generations to be anything they want to be. Today, I'm sitting down with Amy Bowles. She's currently the Director of Workforce Innovation at Train Technologies. They specialize in providing sustainable, efficient climate solutions to buildings, homes, and transportation. Amy's been transforming the brands and cultures of billion-dollar companies, building brands from the ground up, breathing new life into legacy brands, and shaping employee and customer experiences for 20 years. She's passionate about translating business strategy to brand purpose and unlocking the potential of women globally. So I'm excited to talk to her today about her experiences. Let's get to it. Welcome. Today, I have Amy Voles. She is the Director of Workforce Innovation at Train Technologies. And Amy and I actually go way back. Amy was a client at one point in time, but has since moved on, as always, doing crazy, amazing things in the world. So Amy, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much, Missy. It's a pleasure. Awesome. Well, as I was saying before we got started, I, as long as I've known you, don't fully know your story. So I always think it's helpful for our audience to hear a little bit about your background. Tell me a little bit about how you came up in the world. I'm really a small town girl. My parents moved to a little town in the middle of rural Missouri uh, when I was small. I was three when we moved there. And I grew up there. I spent the entirety of my childhood and my adolescent years there. But I always felt like I left my heart in the city because my parents moved from the Chicago area right in the city, uh, actually. We grew up, I grew up just traveling a ton because of that, because we were in this very isolated town of 13,000 people in the middle of nowhere. Stuff wasn't open on the weekends or like after 6 p.m. So it was a big culture shock for my family. And we moved around a lot throughout the Midwest. A two-hour drive is no big deal, right, (laughs) for a Midwesterner. So We traveled a lot. We went to a lot of places. We explored. And so what I remember is not so much sort of being in that small town and being in this very like stodgy environment. What I remember is is getting out a lot and and exploring the world in the sense of like exploration and and wanderlust. And so that's what kind of marks my, my childhood. And eventually I came to college in central Illinois and ended up in the backyard of the world's largest heavy equipment manufacturer, which was Caterpillar. And that's kind of where my professional journey began. I love that. I was looking at your LinkedIn profile. You and I both went to Bradley. It looks like you had a PR major and a marketing minor, which is exactly my story. That's yeah. cool. I love that. Tell me a little bit about what your parents did. So rural Missouri, what took them there? So we actually moved for my my dad's job. And I'll start with a story I, I don't tell a lot, actually. We moved out of Chicago. We were on the south side uh, where my grandparents were. We moved out because my dad had an incident at his work, worked in retail, was working in some rough neighborhoods uh, in the city, and he actually got stabbed at work, ended up in the hospital. The wound was thankfully not life-threatening, but pretty serious, missed major organs by just a, a hair. The circumstance was, was enough that it was kind of a wake-up call that things needed to change. And so we ended up in this very dramatically different 
situation. My dad's career was always really demanding, you know, very different environment <laughs> moving from a, an inner city store to one that was in the middle of this rural community, but one that maintained its demands nonetheless. And, and my mom was really kind of the main support throughout my childhood. She had a job at what I now think is one of the most essential positions in any corporate environment, which is administrative assistant. She worked in the educational field as a support team for a while and kind of did a number of things, but always stayed really involved in my life and my brother's life and kind of in supporting us in that way. Wow. Sounds like you had great role models. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So you went to Bradley. I understand that. And I understand the Caterpillar connection because I also have that here being from Peoria, Illinois. So it looks like you spent almost 16 years there in a whole host of different roles. I, of course, know you from your time as uh, leading some of the brand work, but you also played a ton of sort of digital roles and helping evolve that organization. So walk us through a little bit of your trajectory there and what stands out to you from that experience. Yeah, my background is sort of like a T-shape. I've had a lot of really deep experiences in marketing and brand strategy, but I've also had a lot of broad experience across a number of different areas, all the way from managing teams that were working on mission-critical kind of green screen IT systems to working on organizational design and culture initiatives, and then on the digital and, and CX side as well. And I've kind of telescoped up and down throughout the organization as well, working really closely with the C-suite and a number of different things that I've done but also kind of down with those who are on the front lines, who are really in the field, touching the product, working with customers. And all of that, I think, is is kind of going back to that, that somewhat restless spirit that I developed when I was younger. I'm, I really consider myself a transformer at heart. Brand is, is my love. It's my big passion. And it is kind of the North Star for a lot of organizations. But while it's been a unifier throughout my career, I've also kind of taken the opportunity to identify adjacencies, to go out and, and work within areas that are connected to the marketing side and connected to the marketing work. And that's taken me some really interesting places. And I think Caterpillar is a great example of that. At the time I came in, many employees were multi-generational. It was, you know, you came in because you had a grandfather who worked for Caterpillar and your father worked for Caterpillar. And so you were going to work for Caterpillar. That wasn't my path. I, I joined in the business, in the product marketing side, I got thrown into an awesome group, a small kind of scrappy team, spent several years there working with marketing teams, spent a lot of time in the field with customers and dealers, got to go all over the world working with different parts of the organization, and very quickly went from the dirt to the digital side. Very early in my career, um, working on something which now seems sort of like, of course, which was establishing the common look and feel across all of our digital properties. So really looking at kind of the online journey of CAT customers early on and how to make that make sense, how to make those jumps build on each other and, and really create a consistent look and feel for who we were online. And years later, that kind of brought me full circle because I ended up running a team that was responsible for all of those systems behind our digital footprint and working on marketing attribution processes. But I kind of found my position in, in the brand side and a lot of work there. That's ultimately why you went over to your current role at Ingersoll Rand, right? You were trying to get back to the brand space. Is that fair, Amy? Yeah, that's right. I was uh, on the digital side at Cat once again and got a call, um, was approached by Ingersoll Rand at that time to join the leadership team of a new enterprise marketing group and essentially reposition this century-old brand, uh, Ingersoll Rand, 
which is amazing. A hundred plus years old, uh, Rosie the Riveter used Ingersoll Rand tools. Uh, they were That's used so at the cool. of Mount Rushmore. It's just a really cool story. And so I came over about four years ago to join Ingersoll Rand with the remit of kind of revitalizing this century old brand, joining this new strategic marketing organization at the enterprise level. And then a few months in, just as we were on the cusp of, of launching that work, my job suddenly became a whole lot more interesting because uh, the company split. So Ingersoll Rand split out. This new company was spun off from Ingersoll Rand to become a pure play climate control company, which then became Train Technologies. And uh, I was very involved with that work and the work of essentially creating for the first time this new to market $14 billion enterprise brand. Yeah, it's such a great story. And I want to dig into all this. So I want to start at the beginning and I want to go all the way back to sort of coming out of school and you mentioned cat and I love this phrase you use moving from the dirt to digital. So this whole season is about women in heavy industry. And I would love to know when you reflect back on that 20 something coming out of school, this huge global yellow blood sort of organization, what that felt like to you at that time, especially coming in as a woman and how some of those early experiences, especially out in the field where you got to sort of get to know the customers, how that got in your blood and you stayed in in this sort of industry. I think being that young, getting out there as much as I did early on, I didn't know enough to be intimidated, perhaps. I think that was probably the best possible situation for me. It was I actually started working there my junior year in college. So I I worked full-time and went to school full-time my last two years of school. And as a result, I got uh, to be part of an organization and part of a team that worked very nimbly, was kind of on the front lines of a lot of innovative product work at at that time. So Missy, you might recall um, a number of years ago, this was when Caterpillar was transitioning the motor grader from all of those levers and switches to a steering wheel and joystick. And the joystick was a a huge thing for the product and a big innovation for that particular machine, which was kind of the backbone of the industry that that I was coming into in terms of sales. And that created a lot of opportunities for me to get out and get really close to the customer early on. That said, as exciting as that was, anyone who knows me knows I am much more comfortable in high heels than in (laughs) stage. That is kind of your emblem. It was not an industry that I sought out at at all. It wasn't a dream of mine or anything like that. It was really just about the people and and kind of the runway that I had even really early on to have many careers and many opportunities with that same company. I love that you talk about, was that the M series launch? Yes, the it, was, it was. Yeah, the M series. Yeah. Similar to me, right? I've had a lot of experience with Cat out in the field and just the emotional connection that these dealers and customers have with the products is what drew me in because I wanted to ask all the hard questions about what is it about the steering wheel or the headlights or any of those features that makes you connect to the brand itself. So I imagine you probably had some of those similar experiences. Oh, such a connection. I, that was one thing that I really appreciated about the brand and it's such a strong brand, right? I saw more Cat Cat than any one person should see in a lifetime. <laughs> we saw cat weddings, you know, people who oh had parties with their children who chose to make the brand a part of the most significant moments in their lives and had such a passion for it and such an enthusiasm for who they perceived the cat was and the, the role that the cat brand played in their in their lives in just such an extraordinary way. 
That's amazing. And so I imagine it's, you know, seeing and feeling that firsthand is what led you to love branding. I don't know that there's a lot of industries out there where this is such a part of people's lives that it's not just a job, right? It's not like the retailer, the B2C world where, but this is like how they feed their families every day. And I'm sure you, you've experienced that firsthand. Yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's the interesting thing about this industry, I think. One, there's a lot of misperceptions about it. You hear manufacturing and you think kind of dirty and grimy and, you know, and, and it certainly can be those sorts of things. But even on the Caterpillar side, I spent the large majority of my early career working in landfills, checking undercarriage and doing fuel follows and stuff like that. Even a landfill, quite frankly, not quite the dirty, stinky type of situation that you have in your mind, right? And manufacturing space more broadly, I think, sort of suffers from that, that misperception that there are barriers, it's very hard um, to get into, it's not necessarily hospitable when you get there. But the types of solutions that the industry provides and that companies like Caterpillar and like Ingersoll Rand and like Train Technologies provide are present in our everyday lives in a way that is really, truly extraordinary. So when I go home, I've got a train product sitting outside my house, helping to keep my family cool and warm at the right times and comfortable and have our lives operate in, a, in an efficient and, and calm manner. And those same systems are powering the environments that we operate in, whether it's my children's school or whether it's our workplace. They're running all the time. They're behind the scenes and they're powering our lives in ways that aren't always immediately apparent. And from a history buff standpoint, too, because I'm a big history nerd. I know you are. <laughs> storytelling behind this is just extraordinary to me as well. You've got cat products powering the moon landing and train product or services being in half of the buildings in the United States. The scope and magnitude of what the manufacturing industry offers is, I think, just really incredible. So I got to dig in. So you are the high heels girl. I know this about you. I, and I love your personal girl, brand. Yeah. <laughs> But what did you find early in your career, being a woman in this field, that was almost like my experience is it's kind of an, a surprise when a woman in high heels walks in a room with a bunch of like, grr, you know, heavy industry men. And did yeah. you find that that was something that, you know, could use to your advantage in some ways to, to get people to open up? What was that early experience like for you being in a, a, a male dominated field? Very, very heavily male dominated for sure. And, and you pointed it out, right? It's that way in the field. It's that way going out with customers. It's that way within the companies as well. I think certainly, especially early in my career, I just wanted gender to be a non-issue. Um, the women that I saw within the organization who had, had reached leadership positions, quite frankly, not that distantly in the in the recent past, right? They were there and they were leading in a way that didn't necessarily acknowledge their femininity. Their femininity was more of a liability as far as I, I was concerned. And so I sort of had this this dichotomy of recognizing that I wasn't the the kind of person who was, was comfortable out there in the dirt, so to speak, that I felt more at home and more present in myself when I could acknowledge that side of who I was. But the women who I saw that were successful in those spaces were acting like men in a lot of ways. And in fact, in some of my early leadership experiences, the sentiment was was very prevalent around, look, I, I spent you know X number of years trying not to be a woman leader. I just want to be a leader. I just want to be a rock star. And that was, I think, a very sort of pervasive experience across the the women that I worked with. And in addition to that, I came up kind of young. You know, I, I was leading this big global team before I was 30. And so that combination of the gender equation plus the youth equation was a kind of interesting combination. Absolutely. So I want to dig into that a little bit before we move on to train. So 
I think this issue of making gender a non-issue versus acknowledging your femininity as you talked about it has been shifting. It seems like there's a whole host of different points of view on this. And I remember years ago, you and I were at coffee at, I think it was 3030 downtown. And I was picking your brain because you were the president of the Women's Initiative Network at Caterpillar at the time. And you were learning all these amazing concepts about our privilege and our power that I didn't know yet at that point in my career. And so talk a little bit about maybe how you've seen those themes shift through the years, maybe even how your own points of view have shifted on that. I think that's that's such a great comment because it is so different, you know, just in the last 10 years from when we started that work and when I was coming up as a first-time leader and trying to not only establish a sense of who I was and what my leadership style was going to be, but also build my network now as a, as a leader and kind of reach across the organization in a different way. I, I do think it is very, very different. And an example of that is very much as I described, right, coming in as a leader I started looking around and and I was asking, well, where are all the women? There weren't any of us or many of us at that time. And the range of operation was very, very narrow. There was sort of a prescriptive way that as a a woman in leadership, you felt like you had to act or had to operate. And I found kind of quickly that as I started looking around and asking these questions around why we weren't seeing as many women in leadership as as I thought we we should have, given the numbers that we had, there were there were really two reasons driving that. And one was the, the men were experiencing a different organizational climate than the women. And that was largely because they weren't seeing the women either. <laughs> so they didn't really necessarily see a, a difference in the culture or, the, or that the culture needed to change. But the women were seeing something different. And so in order to sort of unpack that for myself, I had to really openly acknowledge and embrace this part of myself that I denied for a long time because spoiler alert, like I'd walk into a room and people knew I was a woman, right? Like I I had sort of masked that and and told myself that if I didn't acknowledge that part of myself, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a barrier. It couldn't be a blocker in my career progression or in how others perceive me if I had kind of walled that off. The way that I leaned into that was basically over time, ultimately becoming the president of our largest employee resource group, which was WIN, our Women's Initiatives Network, and took over this 5,000 plus member organization and turned it into the organization that I wanted to be a part of, which wasn't as kind of picnics and potlucks, so to speak, (laughs) but as a a resource to the business. Because one of the things I found really sort of irritating, and, and this still happens in organizations today, is women are given problems to solve, they're given more work to do, and they're told to sort of prove themselves on top of everything else, right? And a lot of that work is unpaid and and unrecognized. But I found a way to kind of surround myself with the women that I couldn't find as a new leader. And over time, we built out this program that became kind of the linchpin of the women in leadership strategy for the organization. It's interesting to think about where we were then and the types of conversations we were having, because one of the conversations we had was we couldn't have women in the title. We couldn't call it a women's leadership program because to do so would be kind of too controversial. Wow. And think about where we were then, the sort of uphill battle that we had, which ultimately I think led the organization and led the women in the organization to a really powerful place to think about the conversations that we're having now and particularly within the organization that I'm in and the commitment that we've made to gender equity and to advancement of women and starting to think about all of these challenges in a new way. I'm really grateful to be part of that evolution 
and to be part of conversations now that I think have certainly advanced a little bit farther than we were in those early years. I know you told me that Ingersoll Rand and Train both sort of live their values very deeply. And so I want to dig into that shortly. But I want to talk about one thing that you did while you were championing WIN is that I remember you had us come in and talk, I think, to a very high level leadership audience about the concept of personal branding. And I just think that's an interesting idea and intersection between the things that you love to do for organizations in terms of diversity and branding, and then how you've applied that to yourself. Is that a topic that comes up a lot? in conversations about how do you put your authentic self out there when there is sort of all of this sort of stigma in some ways attached to some of these topics? Definitely. And I think there is that extension as well. The type of work that I do is very much tied to kind of my personal values and who I want to be as a leader and how I want to show up in the world. My core values are curiosity, courage, and hope. And so when I looked at the transition into the role that I have now, it was very much about recognizing that throughout my career, although I'm a dyed in the wool, like 20 plus year marketing veteran, I wanted to also be involved in work that felt very real. And that was tied to who I was, how I kind of came up within the world and the opportunity to have a very real kind of generational impact on people and on on communities in a way that that I had kind of made the time for in a sort of extra sense through the, the work that I had done um, in my prior roles with women in leadership and kind of seeing their journeys and seeing the light bulb come on in a new way. And knowing that when you do that kind of work, it, it's not work that maybe is immediately rewarding, but I would have women call me years later and say like, this moment, me sitting in this class was a life-changing moment for me. You don't get to see that very often. Very few people can rattle off their personal values as succinctly and then show how that shows up in your your work life. So kudos to you and, and just another testament to why you're such a great leader in this space. I want to talk a little bit, though, about, again, going back to your your work in the digital space and how you brought those experiences early on in the field to life through sort of online customer experience. I know how challenging that can be with a legacy brand, especially when you're dealing with legacy systems and data and integrating the brand side with the distribution side of marketing. So would love for you just to talk a little bit about how you led that journey globally, because I think so many of our listeners are struggling that with that in their own heavy industry organizations. Yeah, I do love legacy brands. (laughs) I do too. They're so fun. They're so fun. It might, it might be that storytelling or that, you know, there's always something that there's always like some really cool nugget that you never, I remember being really excited when I was at CAD about like pulling old slides, like the old, you know, mimeoform type of things from the eighties. I spent a lot of time in the archives there. It was just like a playground for me. But the legacy brands, as you pointed out, they definitely have their challenges. Brand is ultimately about showing up over and over again in what feels a lot like the same way, right? It's, it's consistency. It's delivering on the promise. But the challenge for legacy brands, I think, is sometimes they don't keep pace with the business strategy and where the business is headed in a way that allows people to come along with them and, and continue to identify with them in a way that makes sense internally as well, especially within these big multinational matrix companies, there's a pull towards what's worked before and the way things have always been done. And that journey often won't be what keeps you relevant, particularly in an environment like we've seen in the last even five years where things are shifting and changing constantly. And just when you feel like you've got your footing, there's something else kind of around the corner. 
And we found that too in the early days with Ingersoll Rand, the, the brand system was built for a non-digital world. It was built for a world that really didn't exist before. And that made the interpretation of the brand a little bit more, more challenging. So when we built the Train Technologies brand, we envisioned it as being a digital first brand, a brand that was kind of a digital native born for the digital space. And that helped inform everything from the color choice to the brand expression to how we communicated with our customers and our stakeholders online. That's so cool. So for those listeners who may be not familiar with Ingersoll Rand as the parent company and, and sort of some of the sub brands, give us a little bit of the history story so we can understand sort of how you came on board and then how you wanted to evolve the brand. Yeah. So uh, Train Technologies was formed in March of 2020. Um, we spun off from Ingersoll Rand, which was this 100 plus year old diversified manufacturing company to become a pure play climate control company. We turned three last week. So I was reflecting a little bit uh, in the last few days of what our journey has been like, especially because of the time and the timing here. And if you're thinking back, like rewinding three years, yes, that was right on the cusp of the pandemic and the restrictions we started seeing in the U.S. We had our day one and the following week, immediately our U.S. workforce began primarily working from home for the first time. We dealt with the challenges of not only creating a, a big enterprise brand sort of out of whole cloth, but doing that during a pandemic um, and doing that for a company that was very fundamentally different from the organization that we had spun out of, which was this big diversified manufacturer. Today, um, we are a global company with more than 36,000 employees. And two of our big brands are Train and Thermoking. So we are really positioned as a climate innovator that brings efficient and sustainable climate solutions to buildings, homes, and transportation refrigerated transport on the thermoking side and residential and commercial HVAC on the train side. That's so cool. So how, just this is kind of a random question, but tell me about the differences you have seen in Caterpillar as an organization culturally, given the kinds of products they bring to market, their customer base versus now what working at train inherently feels a little bit more innovative, a little bit more focused on sustainability. Can you sort of juxtapose those for me? So interesting that you chose those two words because um, sustainability and innovation, I think, are really kind of in the DNA for train technologies. Certainly, some of that came from the early days of the two main brands, Train and Thermoking. Thermoking being created by uh, a Black inventor uh, in the 1930s that invented transport refrigeration technologies. Train, which has a lot of really significant innovations kind of baked into its, its core as well. Those two words were definitely, I think, front of mind when we created the brand. The thing that I've found in this company and that I, I really appreciate, and the thing that I think sort of sets it apart is that it is a very human company. It's a company that acknowledges the humanity of not just its, its people and the employees that we have globally, but that really set out when the brand was launched and when the company was launched to raise the bar, not just for the company, but for our industry and for the communities that we serve. And the notion behind that tied back to the innovation was around challenging what's possible and of seeing these huge challenges in the world and really looking at them with a sense of bold optimism and choosing to step boldly into the future uh, and bring people along with us. One of the, the symbols that we have in the brand we, is referred to as our uplift symbol, which is the, the A in train technologies. That notion of uplifting people is really very central to our brand, to our leadership principles, to how we operate. And it's not just about the people that we have as employees, it's the people that we impact by operating in the communities that 
we operate in and by the nature of the products and services that we create, which are really about making people's lives better in a really fundamental way. I love that. I, th- I love that on so many levels, both because that takes heavy industry marketing to a whole nother level, right? It makes it Absolutely. about people. I think it was yeah. you guys that said to us at one point, you know, GER marketing in this space is fine, but that's not what we want. We want to turn that on its head a little bit and, you know, put people at the forefront, make it emotional, make it about that quality of life. So talk to me a little bit about that journey that you guys had to have that intentional conversation with yourself. How did you find the nugget? I remember you telling me, Misty, this is some of the most meaningful work in my career and such a huge journey to go on in this global brand director role. Yeah, I was was smiling a little bit just because uh, the first thing that came to mind was our animation style. And it's not every big industrial manufacturing company that has animations to talk to its customers and and animations, again, that are deliberately very kind of human and and almost playful to some extent. That was sort of talking about innovation for a minute, like that was sort of born out of the, the pure fact that the pandemic presented challenges for us that were a bit different uh, in terms of being able to go out and and shoot live footage or shoot people together um, even. And so out of that and those restrictions, we ended up pivoting into a animation style and creating an animation style that is proprietary for for us and for our company. That's so cool. And and doing that in a kind of people-centric way to say, look, we're going to go out and, and during the pandemic, we actually launched a brand storytelling video with this animation style it very deliberately included the first same-sex couple and an interracial couple as well. And, and one that started with the notion of, you know, them being in their house um, with their child and their pet and following them throughout their, their day-to-day life and the different ways that our, our services and solutions affected them and, and influenced them. So from the very beginning, kind of being intentional about thinking about who our customers were, what the world looked like, who we wanted to be and, and how we wanted to operate within that world and baking that into the storytelling and the approach that we took. What a good lesson too for not doing things the way that we've always done them. Did you guys run into hurdles as you were trying to sell these ideas up the ladder? I think there's always there's always that along the way, especially with, with big organizations and that pull towards what works sometimes is so so strong. So strong. I have always kind of believed in the philosophy of of small wins and trying to not only bring people along, but prove things out in a way that doesn't feel quite as threatening as the big change, but kind of plant these breadcrumbs along the way to allow people to latch in and to identify with it in a different, more meaningful way. And we, we did that when we launched the employer brand as well. There were some things that we knew were really core to who we wanted to be, because the interesting thing about a company like ours, when we were being created Train Technologies uh, doesn't have a product or a service um, that has a Train Technologies brand on it. Didn't at that time. So there wasn't something tangible that we could point to. We were building something that felt sort of ephemeral to a lot of people. And despite that, used some key things that felt like they were resonating with people, one of which was the notion of being bold, of daring to do things differently, which was a big break point from the old Ingersoll Rand culture. We leaned into that pretty heavily and started seeding that language with employees and with others, knowing that it would probably, those would be the seeds that we would lean on and pull from to create the employer brand and to create something that was gonna be the connective tissue of how we wanted to operate internally, but also how we wanted to create a differentiated value proposition for our prospective employees as well. 
let's back up just a little bit. So talk to me about the pivot from focusing on the global sort of external go-to-market brand strategy to then shifting your focus pretty drastically to the employment brand. I imagine this had something to do with coming out of COVID, the great resignation, and just really needing to re-engage employees. Yeah, the timing of all this was really interesting. (laughs) It hurts a little bit, quite frankly, to like cast your mind back to that time and all the things we didn't know standing on the cusp of the the pandemic in early 2020. Mm -hmm. And all of the things we didn't know, meaning many of us, myself included, were kind of thrust into these fully remote roles for the first time. And and all of the challenges that that entailed, particularly for working moms and others like us, there was a lot going on at that time that we knew we had to think about the way that we were going to engage people differently. And even in the spite of that, coming out with a new brand, there were still key pieces of the organization that were falling into place, ways that we were deciding to operate, strategies we were building and and executing. And so one thing that was at the forefront for us in creating the employer brand was not only what we were seeing in terms of hiring and the intense demand for talent at that time, but the very people-focused nature of a company that for the first time had seen those people get more far-flung and more disconnected from each other than ever before. So for us, the employer brand was absolutely about creating something that would be a pool for prospective employees. And, but it was also about kind of tapping into the pride and the energy and the optimism of our people and building a sense of engagement and connection for them as well. I have to imagine this job, Amy, has been sort of the culmination of so many threads that you can pull on throughout your career. Does this feel really core to like the work you're supposed to be doing in the world? Or do you have even more aspirations to take this further? Oh, I always I always have aspirations, Missy. <laughs> <laughs> Who you wouldn't be you if you didn't, but yeah. I do feel like this job really symbolizes so much of what you believe in in the world. It's so right. And in all seriousness, I think my path has led me here in a lot of ways. The work that I did in, in my prior role, creating the brand, building the DNA for the company in a lot of ways, figuring out ways to translate that to employees, get people excited about it, and unify at an enterprise level. All of that carried over into the role that I have now, which is about something that's very personal for me. And that is, you know, in the workforce innovation space, taking on another net new function for the organization. I'm the first leader to hold this title at Train Technologies. It's the first time that we've had a dedicated function focused on people who are in the front line, who are in those customer-facing roles, and supporting this vision that we have as an organization of creating opportunity for all. And for me, that's very personal because I'm coming to it, of course, from the perspective of someone who's been in the marketing space for a really long time and kind of seeing behind the curtain, so to speak, with who we said we wanted to be with the brand space. But it's also very personal because I'm first-gen college something that you know I've, I didn't really talk or share about for many years, being the first one in my family to, to go to college and to have a four-year education. My grandparents were Polish immigrants. My great-grandmother came over on, through Ellis Island. They relocated to very manufacturing-dense area of Chicago. I've got a lot of family in the trades. This, in many ways, for me, is making a generational impact at scale in a way that you don't always get the opportunity to do within a function that's kind of purely marketing or purely communications. And that is just really exciting for me. That's so cool. So celebrating heavy industry through the way that you choose to position the brand and bring people into the field, but also retain so them. Well said. Yeah, absolutely. 
talk a little bit too about how your role intersects with the diversity and inclusion programs or whatever is now the employee resource groups that you're championing at Train. Yeah, diversity, inclusion, equity as well. It's really a core part of who we are at Train Technologies. We believe strongly in opportunity for all about improving those lives through our actions and creating new possibilities for the people that work for us, for the communities that we serve in a number of different ways. And within my team, within the workforce innovation function, that is really about how we design a sustainable workforce for the future, how we increase economic mobility for the people who are coming in and working for us and bolster their quality of life, and how we look really intentionally at the systems that are surrounding those people and work to eliminate structural barriers to opportunity. It's really kind of looking at the full cycle and saying it's not enough for us to bring people in and have them really excited about working for us, which we want <laughs> and which which we'll have, thanks in part to this employer brand work as well. But it's also about looking at the entirety of the system that surrounds them and saying, where can we make an impact and how can we make sure that this work is going to be sustainable for for them and for the people who come after them also. I love the way you say that. You're such a systems thinker and, and we're on that journey here at Samantle too. And we know that you can't just check a box. It's got to be a culture change. Got to be culture change. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really curious too about one of the programs that we researched before this interview was called Inclusive Culture Learning Experience. And it talks about this required training for anybody that's in a people leadership role, learning through self-reflection, real life inclusive practices, et cetera. I don't know if you can speak to that or any of the programs like that that you offer your staff where you can literally see people almost transforming from the inside out to then impact the organization. I'm delighted to be working in, in the function that, that I am now. The, the group that I'm in is called Talent Organizational Capability. Um, we've got a, a, a real powerhouse of people alongside me that are supporting our learning functions, our recruiting functions, and our DEI activities as well. And our DEI group is a group that's really critical to who we are, who we said we wanted to be as trained technologies. And the way that we're kind of applying those philosophies and, and carrying that journey forward is through that inclusive culture. So how do we nurture a culture where people are really bringing their best selves to work every day and also the diverse workforce, so the representation of diverse groups within the workforce as well. And the ways that we're bringing that learning and that philosophy to our people are in part through programs like the inclusive leadership learning that, that you mentioned but also through our ERGs. We have a number of ERGs within train technologies, including our women's employee network, our black employee network being two, and a number of women in leadership programs as well. And then for new employees that are coming in, we've also designed a number of pathways and, and programs um, like our relaunch program, which is a returnship opportunity for experienced professionals who have maybe taken a break and they want to come back. We've got programs that will help them re-enter the workforce and hopefully have a, a great experience working for Train Technologies as well. That's so cool. And you know how I know you guys live this? I follow you on social. I notice more women celebrating women in your network and your organization than I do in a lot of places. Has that yeah. been your experience there? Yeah, it has. It's sort of, <laughs> I don't know whether this is like bringing things full circle for me personally or what, but I, you know, I started not working with any women in my career for a number of years and I work with more women um, now and I'm surrounded by more women in, in day to day, um, have more women leaders to look to, to be inspired by than I ever have before. We have a, a significant and, and growing percentage of our workforce that's female. 
our board is more than 30% female, which is a huge achievement. So I feel like within this organization, there's a lot of certainly showing up for others and really, really walking the talk. I see that Carrie, who supports the podcast, pulled some stats and you guys really sort of are making an impact against these gender parity goals. And I think that that's ROI on your efforts. What are the views of some of the men in your organization as you've pushed this boulder uphill? I know years back you shared with me how there was like definitely some wake up calls for the men at the table having these conversations. It just wasn't something that, you know, they thought about in their day to day, but it seems like it's much more embraced now. Time has passed, but it's also a huge part of your culture. How do the men respond to these ideas? We've got a great men as allies program as part of our women's employee network. I think, you know, thinking again back, casting backwards 10 years or so when I first started this work, it was definitely, I think, a more uncomfortable conversation at that point in time than now. And and there's been a lot along the way, right? Not to say that there's not still work to do, because there absolutely is. But anyone who's had a meaningful and, and fulfilling career, who's gone up in the ranks of any organization will tell you how important champions and allies are. And I think we're fortunate to have men within our organization at the executive level, at the senior level, who genuinely invest in and support the women within the organization. And I've had that experience in my career as well, where having those allies and having men who really showed up in a significant way made such a difference in not only being able to move within an organization, but also really be able to deliver in a role and, and feel supported in the work. I love that. And I think that as, you, as you're sitting here listening to you talk, I mean, that's true of any equity issue, right? you got to have somebody who's willing to sort of yeah. take a stand. So and that, I will leave this interview with that in mind for sure. Anything else you want to share about your current role or the work you're doing on employment branding before I switch gears and ask you some more personal stuff? Yeah, let's go there. I'm ready. Okay, perfect. So as I was uh, reviewing the discussion guide for today, I thought, what is it that I really want to know from these women who work in heavy industry? I'm talking to probably 10 different senior level leaders. And sort of what I wrote down is that I want to know what it's like to be a woman in a male dominated field. What is it specifically that has been your greatest learning or insight after all these years about how you choose to lead? Was there something about working in these sort of industries that has framed up your leadership philosophy in a certain way? Oh, that's such a good question. You know, I think one of the things about being in an environment where you're often the only and you feel like the other, you can't really truly bring your whole self to work. It teaches you to navigate and to sort of thrive in an environment that's not always optimal for you. And so you're sort of juggling the ability and the desire and the the showing up in being able to do your work really well and to just completely kick ass in, in your job, right? To set a new standard, to do the work in an exceptional way. And also at the same time, to navigate this environment that you know isn't optimized for you and that indeed has maybe these barriers that are that are invisible or just not seen um, to others. And that becomes really exhausting when it's over the long term. And I think in addition to, to that, one thing that I learned maybe too late in my career that I tell uh, a lot of younger people now is to recognize the difference between achievement and fulfillment. That 
what you're good at is often, if you're really good at it, also going to be really professionally rewarding and really lucrative. But if you're not careful, it's not going to fill you up in the way that you hope it will. Because if you're an achiever, <laughs> if you're an achiever and you like the list making and the doing and the the winning and the the thriving and the succeeding, you'll get good at it. You'll get good at it quickly, but it's not going to be the work that really gives you your energy. And that ultimately will be fulfilling work, not just work that that is really an achievement for you personally or professionally. I think that's so important. It is so important. I'm smiling because it's my next question on my list. You went there because that has been one of my biggest learnings is I think I spent most of my career trying to be an achiever, right? Especially because you have to prove yourself in these industries. You walk into rooms where maybe people don't expect as much from you as you have to bring to the table. But I call the fulfillment piece sort of the enoughness. Was there a certain point along your way where you recognize sort of this inherent worthiness or value in yourself and what you bring to the table? And then how did that grow your confidence so that when you walked into those rooms, even if they weren't optimized, you just had this immense clarity and confidence to do you? I <laughs> learned it from my daughter. And I'm going to share a story, Missy, that, that I've shared with you before. But I keep coming back to you because I think young girls especially like are are so fierce and so amazing i obviously i've got a a good a 12 year old daughter and a 14 year old son and my 12 year old hasn't quite gotten to the point where she's she's learned to harness herself right she's not she's not really fitting in a, in a box and she's doesn't really care too much yet about what other people's expectations of her are she was 11 i think at the time she had gotten in a situation at school where some male peers some boys were kind of picking on her a little bit and teasing her for something that she wore and was doing. And she took kind of the, probably the opposite reaction like I would have had, which was to kind of say, look, I don't need your validation, right? And she actually wrote it down on a little piece of paper. I do not need your validation to live my life, like with a little fierce looking frowny face next to it. And I loved it so much. I kept it and I have it on my computer monitor at home now to kind of remind me that I think you are spot on for women, especially not only do you get that kind of validation for being an achiever, I think you're expected to put yourself last. You're expected to put yourself in the service of others and to please and to not really think about what you want or what's good for you. And it took me a long time to learn that I didn't need to throw myself myself on the tracks for the train to stop. And that is my, that is my reminder. That is my wisdom from my daughter to say, and living for myself and I'm being more kind of present in the moment and kind of taking that in a way that I want to be able to harness that, that ferocity and that spirit for me and and for others as well. Well, you have been such a blessing to me in allowing me to share that story about your daughter in a thousand presentations I've given. And I, I can repeat it. I do not need your validation to live that's my right. life, right? Like, right. why is it so hard for us as adults to ultimately get there? Because that's what we want for our little ones to know, like, it's your spirit, live your life, how you want to live it. I think that's, that's awesome. So right. Yeah. And I think the other thing for me is I'm perennially optimistic. It's really hard to get me down. And that optimism has sometimes led me to hold on to the situations or to roles or to projects that maybe would have been better served by by letting them go. But the flip side of that is, you know, that optimism leads me to some really interesting places. And so the other thing that I have right next to, to my daughter's quote on my monitor is just a tiny blue square post-it and it has three letters on it and it says yet. And 
it's my favorite word <laughs> because there's so many, it's so versatile, right? It's like not yet, but yet, and yet that yet really kind of keeps me going and keeps me oriented around the future when I feel a little stymied in how things might be going in the day to day, or it, it causes me to pivot and to think a little bit more about the ways that the ways that the future is still kind of driving me uh, to do better and to feel better and to, to help others as well. I love that. You know, I've done so much mindset work on telling yourself the other story, right? Or just thinking more positively. And that's such a great leadership skill. Have you used that? I think one of my questions for all the women I'm going to speak to this season is when you think back to major hurdles you've had to overcome, whether it's being in a male dominated industry or not. I know for me, I have some very visual moments, right, of what that looked like and I had to push through. Do you have any stories to share? you know, examples of what this has had to look like for you and how it's helped you grow? I think the big thing is two things. One, in a lot of roles, and I think particularly for women who are in senior leadership positions, there is that pull to still, still to prove your value and to have those metrics that are, that are more short-term than long-term. The real work, I think, comes in the legacy because when you're doing systems work, it's not quick. It's not easy. You pull on one thread and six other ones get unentangled. And it's really challenging to stay focused on the long game. Sometimes you feel like you're the only one who can see it. You can see the vision. You can see what's possible. It's a challenge to to keep others oriented around that and to keep them energized and engaged over what can sometimes be a much longer time horizon than you think you might might need to. The big thing for me has always been trying to approach the work in a really collaborative way, but also remembering that it's not you oftentimes as a leader that gets people there. It's that second person. <laughs> it's the second person who uh, you need to kind of create a movement to turn the light bulb on, to be the one who stands alongside you and gets other people energized as well. And that second person becomes a third person, becomes a fourth person. And before you know it, you've got a movement, you've got something that stands on its own and that's got legs and that is still going and, and working and thriving even after you stepped out of that role. Absolutely. You and I are so similar. I can't tell you how many times I stand in front of my leadership team on my soapbox of something else, you know, and, and then I'll say, okay, not yet, but I'm going to bring this back up six months from now. Yeah, <laughs> and then usually 18 months or 24 months later, it happens, right? <laughs> you just got to have that patience. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about you as a leader. What are some of your leadership philosophies? What are some things that you have learned? Maybe some feedback that you got that you've really had to internalize and turn into how you market yourself. I'm a big one for no ego. Every organizational culture is different, has different tolerances for this. But for me, that's so, so important. A lot of the, the work that I get most energized about is work that one, is not going to pay off in the short term. And two, will not succeed if you're the only one kind of, you know, singing that from that, that hymnal and hoping other people follow along in creative work. And I think, you know, this too, right? You're not your ideas. You can't get wedded to the idea. You've got to kind of fall in love with the problem and not the solution a lot of times and how that evolves and how it comes out in the end may not be precisely how you felt it might have been perfectly executed, but inviting people into the process really matters. It matters in a way that you have to kind of set the story free and let it be owned by others, let it be told by others, let it be evangelized by others. 
but that no ego philosophy is a really important thing for me. So that's one thing that I've always stressed with, with my teams. It's not about us. It's about the work. And that's a really important philosophy for me. And I think the other thing is small wins because this is a long-term really kind of thorny, challenging stuff. And quite frankly, along the way, there's a lot of setbacks. Finding the ability to kind of generate small wins is important, I think, for for the teams who can sometimes feel like they're the only ones <laughs> pushing that that boulder uphill, but also in, in creating a, a sense of contagion for the larger organization and to lead to, to bigger transformation as well. Personally, the sense of being someone who has always kind of thrived in the mess. I love the gray. Give me a good whiteboard any day of the week. Like I'm very happy in environments and places where there's a lot of mess and churn and turbulence. I'm quite calm and unflappable in those situations. I've also kind of learned just to let people in a little bit to that and to say, hey, look, you know, there's there's times along the way when I can definitely get a little bit heads down and I get immersed in the situation and in the work. But learning how to sort of let people in um, to that process and to the journey, as well as the ultimate result, I think has been really important. I think you and I have both grown in that way. I think when you're younger, you try to pretend like you got it all figured out and then you just start asking a lot of questions. (laughs) Right. I love that. We'll get back to the rest of the interview in just a minute. But first, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Symantle. I happen to know a thing or two about them because I'm one of the owners. Symantle is an industrial consumer marketing firm with an obsessive focus on customer experience. We not only execute killer marketing campaigns, but we help organizations align around goals, audiences, messages, channels, and tactics to create more than campaigns, but programs that align to business strategies. Symantle has 40 years experience crafting positive, engaging customer experiences at every point in the consumer journey. And if you like what you hear on this podcast, head to symantle.com slash blog for more content. You'll find articles, tips and tricks, do-it-yourself tools, webinars, and more to help you keep learning and growing right along with us. All right. So we're running short on time, but I do want to ask the question that I ask every interviewee on the show. What's something you're personally struggling with right now that you would love an answer to? What's a question you have? Fortunately, not a lot of super big things in the moment. So maybe this will be, maybe this will be a little fun one. I read a lot. I go through like three or four books a week. Let's be honest. Like I do love to read the big nerdy, you know, neuroscience type of stuff. I also am, have never shied away from a good beach read or a good sure. quick book. And I would love to get a book recommendation. What should I be reading? What should I read next? I love that question. And good for you for reading that much. You are kind of brainy, though. Do you know your <laughs> Enneagram type? Do you know I don't. What? I don't. Okay. It's a big thing here at Samantha, but I would guess that you're probably maybe a... Maybe a five. You're sort of the wise one. I've always admired that about you, but I'm sure that serves you well. All right, Amy. Well, this has been amazing. I feel like I need to go back and listen to this interview myself and take notes because there's so many things you said that I want to think about and write about. But I can't thank you enough, not only for sort of our professional connection and all you've done for me, but the personal one too. And I'm excited to share this episode with your organization. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks, Missy.
Well, there you have it. I'm so proud to bring you episodes this season from the hardworking women in leadership and decision-making roles getting it done at Heavy Industry Brands. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget you can check out more episodes of the podcast at our marketingsweats.com website or find us wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe. That's a wrap for today. Keep up the good work, friends, and we'll chat again soon. 